And I think the capacity that gets built by these state organizations of engaging communities of color, engaging young people, it's essential for the functioning of democracy, regardless of whether there's a democratic crisis underway. We always have to be building power. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is David Donnelly, founder of the Pro-Democracy Campaign a group that works to fund the organizations that are the infrastructure to support democracy and combat Republican attempts to undermine it in the states. David has a long history in related fights, having worked for years to establish public financing of elections. He ran the group Every Voice for some time. After January 6th, David began talking to the key organizations to understand what kind of strategy was needed And then he established the pro-democracy campaign to raise money to help in their efforts. I enjoyed getting to know David and learning what he's up to in this important work. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with David Donnelly at the pro-democracy campaign. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from TimePlots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Timeplot's library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Hi, David. Hi, Nathaniel. Would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. My name is David Donnelly. I've been working on issues related to democracy for two or three decades. First, um, and primarily on the issue of money and politics, I ran a national organization for years after having worked at the state level to advance small donor public financing. In the last couple of years, I've been working to set up something called the Pro-Democracy Campaign, which is a state-based effort to support the infrastructure around making our elections work for all. Um, I live in Princeton, New Jersey with my wife, and we have a couple of kids. We have a puppy named Rosie, Black Lab, and and I'm happy to be with you today. It, it does sound like a good career you've got going in doing important things. What took you down this path originally? My folks were active on a variety of issues from reproductive justice to criminal justice work in the 70s and and, and 80s. They were always um, people who lived their values. And so I grew up in a an activist household as well as um, one where, uh, you know, it was, you know, uh, we, we learned very early on that we needed to pay attention to our communities, not just to what we wanted. Tell me about your education a little. For formal education, uh, I went to Colby College in Maine, a small liberal arts school in the middle of Maine, um, and then spent a little bit of time in graduate school at Purdue, where I discovered I wanted to have um, a little bit more of a hands-on experience. And so I left there and learned another whole set of skills and, and gathered experience by working in politics and congressional races, and then on some ballot questions on democracy. But you know, the education that I've had is largely by learning from a a lot of really, really smart and um, interesting people around the, the country. I didn't make it through graduate school myself. What were you studying and how did you kind of figure out that that wasn't the path? You know, I was studying international relations in comparative development, how countries move from uh, underdeveloped to more developed. And um, it felt very distant from the things that I saw around me in the, in this country and very distant from um, practical stuff that I felt like I could spend my time working on and, and focused on. So I left after um, a year and a half and never even gave another thought to going back. Got you know, pulled right into politics, pulled right into thinking about big picture issues that the country was facing. 
the rest is um, is just gravy. What was that first thing that you did in politics after leaving graduate school? You know, I was um, a really a little bit uncertain about what to do. So I walked into a congressional office and offered to volunteer. Apparently, it was a rare thing for them to have a, someone walk in off the street to ask to volunteer. But they put me on the phones because it was a, it was the middle of the NAFTA debate, if I can uh, date myself. So it was in you know, 1993, 1994. And the NAFTA debate was raging and they needed extra people to answer phones because people were so upset about what was happening um, and were calling on both sides of the issue. And so I started out taking phone calls from constituents and realized that it was an essential feature of like how our democracy works is to have accountable elected officials. And after a a few weeks of doing that, uh, there was an opening in the office and I got hired to work in that to do constituent services in, in the congressional office. I've heard that story so many times. Politics is so permeable in that way. There's a constant need for people who are intelligent, who will work hard, who will fill in the spaces and you can move up pretty well if you if you do a good job. Who was the member of Congress? Member of Congress was Tom Andrews, who's a member in the first congressional district in Maine, served two terms in the House before running for Senate. That was where the real education started in terms of how politics actually happens in this country. So I spent two years working in his congressional office and and about six months working on a Senate race where I saw him and overheard him having to make one call after another to perfect strangers all over the country trying to raise money. He would take a, a slight break around the news hour. We'd sit and watch the news together. We'd see a new ad pop up from our opponent, who was Olympia Snow, who actually went on to win that race and served in the U.S. Senate, a moderate Republican. So he came to those those kind of breaks in his uh, fundraising um, uh, with uh, just exhaustion. And then we'd see an ad pop up and the fundraising director would tell him, you have to get back on the phones. I think there are a lot of amazing people trying to do public service and want to serve uh, in office and do the right thing. None of them go into running for office to be a glorified telemarketer. None of them uh, want to do that for their career. We just throw these amazing people who have all these ideas and interests in, in serving the public good, regardless of where you fit yourself on the political spectrum, who have to spend most of their time thinking about money. So even back then, right, this is 1994, right? So this is a long time ago. Citizens United wasn't even a iota of a thought back then. Even back then, it was a grueling experience to see someone into, you know, and I'm sure a grueling experience for him, but to see how that fundraising system diverted all of the attention and all of the energy of incredibly good, smart people. I'm well aware of that, that kind of call time obligation. I wrote software to facilitate it back in 97, 98, 99. And I watched many members of Congress was in their apartments or fundraisers offices. And it's a crazy system that, that we have. And there's been some relief from it, I think by online fundraising and other things, but it's still going on and it is super painful. So there's a long time in your career between that Senate race and then working on the small donor reforms, or is there more? Tell me about what happened yeah. in between. So I left that that congressional race thinking, I don't think I want to work for another candidate right away, but I don't want to step away from politics. And I thought, I actually want to work on this issue of money in politics. And so I called around and I found out, lo and behold, there was an actual effort in Maine at that time to launch a statewide ballot question that would adopt the country's first system of full public financing of elections, the small donor-driven system. And so I began running that campaign, ran that campaign for two years. We won with 56% of the vote and adopted what most people thought was not possible. And it revolutionized politics in the state. Uh, It changed the conversations that people were having with their elected officials or increase the the number of conversations it could have because of the way that the fundraising happened. And it just provided more accountability and more opportunities for different kinds of people to run. So I went from there to running a similar campaign in Massachusetts, helped to win that campaign with a, a wide margin, ran into a buzzsaw in the, in the state legislature 
in Massachusetts. The Democratic leadership of uh, the state house in particular was opposed to it and refused to implement and fund the law uh, that we had passed with a two to one vote. And then gradually, you know, moved from there to other projects over time. But that effort in Massachusetts was pretty formative that we don't have an issue of money and politics in this country that's largely one that's about um, top down rather than left right when it comes to the kinds of changes that we need, um, that people who are in power, regardless of their party, don't often want to change the way they get there. So in Massachusetts, that was a bunch of Democrats that didn't want to you know, upset the the way that people could run for office. A pretty important lesson to understand that you, you actually need part of the political establishment to go along with the reforms that you're pursuing, or you need significant citizen power to overcome it. We had close to both in Massachusetts, but not one or the other. And so eventually the legislature, after back and forth of the courts, a pretty amazing fight with the Speaker of the House in Massachusetts, a guy named Tom Finneran. Uh, eventually, he was able to engineer a repeal of the law, even though voters had passed it. So Amazing. The public campaign umbrella, or is that the organization you end up with? Or what's the yeah. route there? So public campaign was founded in the wake of the main initiative in 1996. So after I'd worked on that effort, public campaign was set up because there was an interest that if we had broken the glass ceiling of what was possible, a number of national organizations and some national funders and a lot of state actors around the country, state organizations around the country wanted to replicate it. One of those states was Massachusetts. They wanted to replicate it and were already underway doing that work. And so I joined in that effort to um, to figure out how we could, you know, continue to spread wins around the country. At the same time, um, uh, folks in Arizona were moving ahead with a small donor public financing program there. So that was, you know, that happened concurrently. They both, they, they adopted the same year that Massachusetts adopted it. The clean elections program is still on the books in Arizona. It's not working as well as it could, but it's still on the books there. So Public Campaign clearly is an organization we related to. We got support from them in Massachusetts. They were helpful in providing lots of technical assistance. It was a natural home for me to move to when I wanted to get a little bit away from state politics and get more involved in some national settings. But what I was really curious about when I uh, left the Massachusetts effort after um a lot of years. I worked day in, day out for about five years to try to, to succeed in the state. Um, I was very interested in political accountability, if you can imagine, having come out of a loss, which I think w it was an important um, kind of aha moment for me uh, that these issues are intensely political and we shouldn't assume they're not. Uh, we would love to have our democracy be a much more nonpartisan thing with just everyone agreeing to what the rules are and everyone, you know, thinking about it as a most as a inclusive and welcoming thing that participation is a, is, a, is in generally a good. But that's not how the the world of politics works. The rules are always contested, and in order to uh, to push on the side of more inclusion and more participation, you have to think about a political accountability. So I set up a what was then called a 527, uh, to defeat members of Congress or U.S. senators who were bad on the issue of money and politics. So we decided to you know, move ahead. So I found a, a home at Public Campaign at the time, although it was a segregated project, and, and began running that uh, to bring some political accountability to the work. I, I always think... Building an organization requires an awful lot of learning and persistence. What did you learn yourself from tackling that one, making that happen? It's a good question. I mean, I think it's hard to tease out the learning from one campaign to the next. There's a lot of layers upon layers of stuff that you pick up, and it's sometimes hard to disaggregate it, to be honest. A couple of uh, takeaways from that period of time. The first was... Um, uh, it's really important to figure out um, what your power analysis is as an organization when you're trying to advance structural changes. If you don't have a clear power analysis, then all you have are great ideas 
and not um, a strategy that actually helps you overcome the obstacles that are built into you know the inertia of the, of the system. So that's one major takeaway. I hear people say power analysis a lot. Well, could you define that for people who are kind of absorbing the lingo and uh, maybe need to conduct such an analysis? It's best to like use an example. This Massachusetts example is a, probably a pretty good one. We have a had a state legislature, still is a state legislature that was 75% uh, Democrats and 25% Republican. Uh, in order for us to win, we were going to have to get a majority of the lawmakers to go along. Our vote count in the you know in the legislature was going to be all the Republicans and a third of the uh, of the Democrats, or we'd have to get most of the Democrats to go along. So we, like we we're going to have to figure out what moves them. And the power analysis, when you get right down to it, is like who are the people, and what are the you know who are the people that will be able to convince. Republican lawmakers that public financing is a good thing, right? So you can imagine that that's an ideological question, and it's also a power one for them. It's like if they feel like they're in the wilderness for years, maybe some of them might think, here's a way to actually field more candidates, be more competitive. You have to you know, try on that idea for size to see whether, oh, this is a strategy that we can deploy because we understand what what power means to them is getting more seats in the legislature. And that might be possible if there's this public financing law, right? So that's an analysis on the democratic side. It's like, we're not going to get the speaker of the house. There's a progressive caucus that is kind of forming. Maybe we can get the progressive caucus to adopt this, but they're going to have to every day think about we're taking on the speaker on the thing that he cares about the most can you hold people together around a common strategy? And then if you can, how do you do it? Does it require that you get the labor unions lined up, the environmental groups lined up, the choice groups lined up to all be supporting this democracy agenda or this money and politics agenda that pushes, again, a, a segment of the Democratic Party? Well, all those groups also have their things that they're trying to move at the legislature. So you need to understand the kind of the ecosystem of where um, where power lies and, and how to lever what power you have to, um, to get more. On top of that, then there's the question of like, can you actually leverage the power that is inherent in the system you're trying to reform? So for us, it was, can we build a set of individual donors that are willing to tell their legislator, I'm not going to give to you anymore. Right. I'm not going to give to you anymore unless you support moving ahead with this small donor public financing program. So you have to even think about like, what are the levers that you're actually trying to change that you might want to turn on his head to be able to, um, to affect the change? So, yeah. And also to other layers to it, the power of the press, the power of driving narrative, the power of having people put into action. You have to calculate all that stuff together. And so when you think about what a power analysis might look like, it's not a like, oh, this person has power and we need to build more to get it, which is how I described it before. It's obviously there's many, many more layers to, to goes into what a strategy is to use what you have to get a little bit more power, to have a little bit more influence and to move those who are reticent into, into action. So continue with the learnings because I kind of interrupted. Yeah. You were going to give yeah. me a couple from that era. Yeah. And I think, you know, the, the other major one was that innovation in, in the in the kind of campaign finance and money and politics space was incredibly important. That these were issues, and again, it's related to this power question, that I, I came to the conclusion that reform was too important to leave to the reformers. That most of the folks that were my colleagues and incredibly important allies in these fights didn't have the same power analysis. So we actually needed to find additional allies to bring to these fights, organizations whose issues were either halted or, or prevented from moving ahead because of the role of money in politics. So environmental groups are clear ally when it comes to issues of money in politics, in part because of the power of money on the other side. So making that case that some of their time and some of their efforts should be focused on the structural changes. Labor is another example, and even in states where they have significant ability to move 
leadership in the right direction. They still, on the big issues, still get shut out. It still takes them a huge amount of, of effort to pass a minimum wage law. It's still, you know, the power of the restaurant industry, the power of other uh, industries, they still fight all that work. And so it's important that we, you know, that we think about these issues of democracy is not the domain of the lawyers and the policy wonks and the nonpartisan good government groups, but the domain of all of us. So that was a pretty big, important takeaway from those uh, those times. Again, kind of related to the power analysis that I mentioned. And the third big takeaway I'd say is that there is a, a tremendous appetite uh, among the public for these questions, but not a whole lot of hope about them. And the cynicism that we deepen every single day by talking about how corrupt government is makes people less interested and making government work for everyone because they just write it all off. And so the idea that we would somehow talk about we need to like be, you know, against corruption, but then say, but we want to give public financing to all these corrupt politicians. It's like, it doesn't help us. So the story doesn't help us. And so what we started to do a lot of in those, those years is talk about the corrupting influence of money, making sure that the, the agents of those who are getting in the way was the corporate industries funding the candidates, not the candidates themselves. So that shift of thinking, you know, narrative-wise, that we need to talk about this work not as a fact that government is corrupt, but as a verb that the industries were doing the corrupting, that would allow us to build a, a better foothold in, in driving citizen action and citizen activism to support overthrowing a system every voice what was that transition so every so every voice was the success successor of uh, of public campaigns so public campaign and a 51c3 and a 51c4 organization called public campaign action fund changed their name we rebranded changed the name and we expanded our portfolio of work all we did was change the the the, the name on the door not the office but we expanded the the staff and our ability to support more state organizations around the country and did that go well? Yes, it went well in that we um, began to engage many more uh, state organizations in advancing policies around the country. We took this idea of political accountability as we had developed and supported it as a broader strategy. And it was certainly picked up and perfected by and Citizens United uh, this idea of saying these issues are too important to leave to the reformers. That found a home in the Democracy Initiative and many other organizations that came afterwards. So before um, we began expanding our staff and doing much more state work um, in the in the last part of, or the middle part of last decade, a lot of the ideas that we had kind of been working out on strategies were actually became full organizations um, that were driving that work ahead. And so we have a lot of pride in the, in the idea that these things that we were trying to figure out, actually others actually could do them better and took them on and, and ran with them. And it was, it was really great to see all that. So when we moved a handful of state policies, we went back to Maine after Citizens United had, uh, in other court cases, had, had carved out pieces of that law and made them inoperable. We went back and helped to reform that system. So in 2015, um, uh, there was a ballot measure in, in, in sorry, Maine to, to, to redo and to reform the, in, in the existing reform. And that has actually gone quite well. Um, so that was an uh, important victory. At the same, very same night, the voters in, in Seattle adopted a, a comprehensive system of public financing that's based in providing vouchers to everyday citizens in the city, so in, in Seattle. For city elections, those that, that agree to only take small donations can receive coupons or vouchers from, from voters in the city, and everyone gets four of them to give away, four $25 vouchers. It's a completely you know, democratizing way of funding campaigns. That, that was adopted the same night, so we had a, a couple of early wins. And with Trump's election, though, the questions about our democracy were less about what policies to move. And more, a little bit more existential, right? <laughs> a little bit less about, hey, how do we try to win a question on the ballot here or move something in the legislature? And more, wait a minute, there is a set of uh, rule of law 
challenges to like how we conceive of ourselves as a democracy. Those are major questions that got put front and center. Our funders uh, stepped back a little bit from the policy work and moved towards other aspects of of the threats to democracy. And um, and we decided that we were going to begin to wind down the organization because we felt like the timing uh, uh, made sense to us to do things well rather than you know wait to the bitter end. So we did a very uh, clear and focused uh, wind down strategy and and eventually supported all of our staff to be in more you know, sustainable places and make good with all of the you know, foundations that had supported us and had a good wrap up of that process. I'd seen that go really poorly with other organizations. If I was going to get the some version of uh, the, the blame for having an organization that we decided to shut down while I was running it, I didn't want to uh, compound that by doing it poorly. We effectively, you know, uh, wrapped it down. We had a couple hundred thousand dollars left over after all that process was done, and we helped to seed a new organization um, that uh, has supported some state democracy work around the country. I really admire taking it out that way. I've seen responsible endings of organizations, and I've seen less ones, and it really takes a lot of fortitude to to kind of carry all of the details to the bitter end. And I'm, I'm glad you did that. I'm sure you're. There's a, a, a cast of, of colleagues as well as a, a, the board that was you know, essential to that. And this is the other kind of lesson you learn over a while after running organizations. When you get to the place that you are looking uh, down at a spreadsheet rather than up at the world, you should reevaluate how things are going. I reevaluated. It was important uh, that I looked more up at the world. I didn't get into you know doing this work to be a someone who's looking at numbers all the time. I got into it. And I think these people are incredibly important <laughs> in our organizational health, right? Or you know, we need people like that. I got into this work because I wanted to make change. A strong organizations are part of that. I also um, think I'm better suited to be a strategist than an accountant. Um, and so I'm you know, happy to get back into that role. You talked about the change that Trump and Trumpism brought to the funding community, to our politics. It took me, it took m most everybody some time to absorb and figure out what is going on here. How dangerous is this guy? What are the true aspirations of this movement? And maybe it took them some time to figure out what they were after. And maybe that was in the cards with Bannon and Trump and maybe him looking around the world at this happening elsewhere. I, I don't really know a hundred percent, but it's become clear certainly through and past January 6th that we have something far more serious than I think was grasped early on, that it's an ongoing, very dangerous problem that is very hard to, to fight and complicated, even though there's a lot of people doing good things. Can you just talk about how you came to understand what's going on, what the risks are? Yeah, you know, not to wax too you know, philosophic or to like just, you know, lean on history. But this is a crowd of, of people who have inherited a pretty dark history in our country dating back to the founding. And so they, they you know, I don't want to overstate that, but I also don't want to understate it. The idea that what we are seeing is the latest version of people who think, you know, either we don't we don't have and should never aspire to be a democracy. So they've inherited that legacy. They've also inherited, you know, the legacy of racism and bigotry that it fuses their interest in, in getting power um, with this this uh, you know racist underbelly in American history. There's two stories about America. One, you know, two, two, two strands of the story. One is a it's a country that strives to expand opportunity and participation for all, right? And we see those moments in time through, you know, Reconstruction and, and the you know uh, suffrage and 
reducing, you know, lowering the voting age for young people, civil rights, like all those things, like freedom to marry and 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 so on, so on, right? The expansion, you know, parts of our our history. We also have elements in our society and in our history that have been trying to restrict it, right, forever. And, And this is why, like, I've come to the conclusion that these are not static questions that get solved. There's stuff that you always have to work on and pay attention to. If we're not pushing for a more inclusionary society, we are ceding that territory for the forces that will always push to restrict it. That's the the big picture. I don't like we can talk, uh, you know, at length about like I saw some of this with like going after the postal service and about you know mailing voters to people who are sick right and had COVID and like you know, they could they shouldn't be voting in person like the the disregard for for our fellow Americans and and the strategies that were pursued were just like astounding right and every single time you kind of like wake up like wow did they really do that yeah storming the Capitol and and the insurrection was you know an intense inflection point in American history they didn't win that day. They started to win the next day. The presidential election began on January 7th, right? 2024 began on January 7th, 2021, through the energy that they translated into a set of state laws and state policies and candidacies and attacks on elected officials that will set up the stage for trying to win an election in 2024, right? Or to steal an election in 2024. So... Like they're not stopping, even if they, if, you know, they got caught. Right? So what this awakened in, in me is for years, right? I, I talked a few minutes ago about the importance of like reform is not, is, is too important to leave to the reformers that these democracy questions have to be, that everyone needs to be involved. Like, you know, the, there is a democracy constituency in this country. It's just an anti-democracy constituency, right? We haven't figured out how to build a pro-democracy constituency of people who are actively engaged in protecting and advancing the ability for everyone to participate and to have their voices heard. We actually have to build that and we have to figure out how to catalyze it. So when I thought, oh, January 7th, you know, a day after January 6th, and now they're pushing these policies around the country. And our response so far has been like, let's try to pass a piece of federal legislation, which is great. But all the state organizations that were trying to push back against the stuff happening in the states weren't involved in the federal legislation. They had very few resources. So I convinced a a few funders to let me do a scan of the field over the summer of last year to ask these kind of big picture questions. What will it take? What are the gaps in your states for for building real power when it comes to these questions? How do we fight back against what you're seeing emerging from these conservative uh, factions in the Republican Party? What do we see, you know, as a possibility there? When you talk to a lot of state leaders and listen to a lot of state leaders, it becomes really clear that these issues on democracy have been kind of a boom bust a cycle. If there's a campaign, money gets poured in. If there's voter registration to do, money gets poured in. But the ongoing capacity to work on these questions exists in the nonpartisan space, but not in the community organizing groups that actually do politics. We need to build that. And so that's what I've uh, been uh, turning my sights to in the last um, year, year and a half or so. So you mentioned funders and you mentioned the scan that you did. Can you say more about that both? Yes, a relatively small number of funders who prefer um, uh, to not get a lot of attention, but the you know small set of funders that provided a little bit of funding for myself and another colleague. To, we talked to 110 state leaders around the country. The state leaders uh, gave us their time and their intelligence and smarts. We talked to folks in states like Mississippi, as well as uh, you know in Wisconsin and Michigan and Pennsylvania. You know as and spent a lot of time with people in Arizona and understand the dynamics there. And so what came out of that was a planning process that in 16 of those states, we received plans for what do we need to do in this democracy space over the next two to four years to, in some ways, replicate the infrastructure that we, we saw emerge out of Georgia over the last 10 years. So out of Georgia, there are a set of organizations that really figured out how to come together Obviously, compelling leadership with Stacey Abrams, but also incredible organizers with 
can say in Foot and Lauren Rowargo and a variety of others that, that helped to pull that that uh, that infrastructure together that actually had amazing results in the 2020 election cycle, but also continued to be together to push back against all the voter suppression efforts in the Georgia legislature. We wanted to see, all right, so what would it take to accelerate the building of that infrastructure in a variety of other states on top of what was already there, of course, or knitting together was already there with additional funding, with additional technical expertise, with additional intention around we're in this for a long term. It's not just in this for the next election cycle. We're not just in this for the next presidential cycle. We're in this for like, let's make our democracy work for all. What does it look like over time to do those investments? Um, And investments in both the expertise that, that we could attract from national organizations or from elsewhere, as well as the funding that we could pool. So tell me about building this enterprise to do this. Like, I know you've got a set of advisors. I've seen the list. I'm assuming you've made some hires. I don't know. I know you've spent some money and, and have intention to spend more. Tell me about what's happening in, in more detail. Yeah, it's an amazing group of advisors. Maurice Mitchell from the Working Families Party, Lauren Gorwargo, I mentioned her, who's Stacey Abrams' campaign manager and has been uh, kind of an architect of some of the work there in Georgia. Um, Mike Podorzer, who's at uh, was at the AFL-CIO and now does a lot of narrative work. Uh, uh, Poo at the National Domestic Workers Alliance. Uh, Julie Fernandez uh, at the Rockefeller Family Foundation. Um, uh, Ian Basson, who's at Protect Democracy. Heather McGee, who's an author, who's also just a kind of a, a person who's driven a lot of the conversation about having a race class narrative. So amazing group of advisors that we are privileged to learn from. They're grounded in the ability of state organization to succeed and to thrive. And so it's why we wanted them on our team. Um, We have built out a small staff of people who come from uh, either philanthropic backgrounds, campaign backgrounds, or policy backgrounds with some people who are very knowledgeable about all the election protection work that needs to take place uh, in the election administration work. So we have some technical support on staff as well as some people who know narrative and know communications work quite well. So it's an amazing group of folks that um, have come to this work. And, you know, the pro-democracy campaign is less an organization than it is a strategy, a strategy to pursue supporting state organizations in whatever way we can so that they are working more closely together with other like-minded organizations, that they're coordinating a long-term strategy, and that they're using the capacity that they have now to affect that. So what that means to us is that if we're funding an organization to support their organizing capacity, we want them to have not just a policy analysis of what they want to aim towards, a proactive agenda, we also want them to have a political analysis of who are the people who who can be in office to help us achieve this. Who are the people that we need to defeat who are in the way of this? So that political analysis is critical to the ability of us to to see policy wins over time. Lastly, we don't think that this is just a fight in the most highly targeted states or just the battleground states, so-called battleground states of uh, of Arizona and Michigan and Wisconsin and the the rest. We also want to do some deep investing in states that have been like flyover country for progressive philanthropy from New Jersey uh, to Mississippi. There's not a lot of progressive resources that flow to either one. And we think there are improvements to make in the way that democracy works in New Jersey that are quite unique so that there's a little bit more of a North Star of like what a state that is trending more progressive, trending to be a majority minority state within a few years. We have a a set of questions that our partners in New Jersey are, are kind of answering and trying to move ahead, as well as what are the pieces of the infrastructure to build in Mississippi so that what we're seeing over the, the end part of this the, this this past summer and early, uh, early September here is this water crisis in Jackson is not a failure of the city. It's a failure of the state to pay attention to the residents of the city. And we need to figure out what does an infrastructure look like to make that case and to actually do some organizing around so the people all the people of that state get representation, not just those that are um, are well off or white. So, anyway, so we're in the midst of of helping to support a, a variety of ends of the spectrum of where organizations are at and what they're building in their states. 
since somewhere in the 2000s, there have been all of these layers of donor projects to upgrade infra progressive infrastructure in in the states post the the dean run for presidency and a bunch of them exist there's movement voter project raising money for state organizations or organizations that that are building political power there's just there's a lot of democracy alliance there's kind of this interlocking group of funders trying to do some overlapping things with what you're talking about. What is different about what you're up to than what lots of other people are trying? I mean, I'm very confident that we can use all the help you can come up with and more, but what's the different angle here? Yeah. So we're laser focused on uh, what are the capacities in each state that need to be supported or expanded or built if it's not there to make for a well-functioning kind of uh, pro-democracy ecosystem. So we are very focused on that question. Um, when we started this, the state plans that I referenced back in uh, you know last September or so, we had state plans. There weren't a whole lot of folks talking about investing in pro-democracy work given what we've seen emerging at the state level, given what we've seen with Trump's actions, given all the emergence of these secretaries of state that are election deniers, all the candidates around the country that are election deniers, and the, the interest at the state level in doing more of this work on democracy and the fights that we're having in counties and every corner of, this, of the country around you know, who gets to count the votes and you know, are we going to allow for voter intimidation? There's a, a moment that there are a significant number of partners that have come to look through the same lens that, that we're using, not because we've given it to them, but because they've come to it on their own and they're smart people and they're driving smart strategy and they're listening to state leaders. So we collaborate with all the groups that you mentioned and many more that you didn't. We collaborate in terms of sharing the plans that our state organizations or state partners had developed on behalf of the ecosystems last fall. We share in terms of what we're hearing from state partners. If we hear about staff burnout in us in an organization in one state, we'll make sure that this is not a, you know, it's not just something for them to pay attention to. It's something for us to help them navigate. We're thinking about if there are technical assistance grants that can be provided from other partners other national funding partners, that we make our grantees aware of that and make sure that we're, we're connecting the dots. There is an interlocking uh, nature of this. I'm somewhat excited about the fact that many more funders today see uh, the importance of investing in democracy long-term than were there a year ago. And that's not a long time in the, in the funder world to make a shift like this. So I'm very encouraged by it. All credit goes to the moment we're living through or maybe almost all credit. I think we we have played some role of of providing at least a way of thinking about this for funders that that gravitate to it. So we've moved a significant amount of money. We're also happy to see other foundations move their own money that is done in an aligned way with uh, with what we're supporting. There's a a little bit of nuance I think between being pro democracy in this moment and being progressive or democratic in the, in the capital D sense, because the Republican party is aligned, but not completely aligned in all cases with anti-democratic movements. And the democratic party is aligned, but not completely aligned with expanding opportunity to vote. But your very experience in, in Massachusetts, you know that sometimes it gets more complicated between broader principles and specific needs in particular places at particular times. How do you navigate the broad coalition that's needed to protect the country from what I think Biden calls the MAGA Republicans, right? Um, that are the threat. How are you messaging on that? How, how are you partnering? Does that change any of the calculus? Yes, it does change the calculus. The context in which we're doing the work is um, the context in which we're doing the work. Right? We, there's a faction in the Republican Party called the MAGA Republicans that only think democracy works when they win. And that is a dangerous thing. There's even some people promoting, 
you know, very explicitly changing the president to a monarch of some sort or a, a ruler of some sort. I mean, it's that's the minority of the minority, but it's there. It's and it's big funders. And you look f- just not that far ahead, a major case before the Supreme Court next term that will um, take up this question, this kind of independent state legislature theory, right, that they can actually pass laws and no one can review them when it comes to elections because they are the elected officials that are closest to the people. They're the ones that should speak for the people. So there's dangerous stuff on the horizon and dangerous stuff not just for progressives. It's dangerous stuff for everyone, right? I always think it's important to build independent political power. Like it's not about building the Democratic Party's political power. Certainly there's an alignment with most Democrats support voting rights, right? So like there is an alignment in terms of like who we're actually electing, but not in terms of the power that we're building. Even if there's a Democrat that supports voting rights, it doesn't mean they're not held accountable to doing as as much as possible to advance the ability of people to who don't have access to vote to be able to vote. There's always going to be a need for independent political power. In this you know, situation, we also need to be very, very conscious about identifying those that are moderate or right of center who don't like what's happening in the country and don't like what's happened to the Republican Party. They don't feel like they're at home there. And so, yes, there have to be, you know, careful outreach and design strategies and frankly, you know, a fair amount of, of their own kind of fortitude to step forth because it's career risking for a lot of Republicans to step forward. Just ask Liz Cheney. But we do need to figure out how we relate to those types of efforts, whether they're kind of responsible actors in the, in the corporate world like a lot of corporations decided to stop giving money to the those that were defending January 6th. Actually, they've gone back on a lot of those pledges and they're now allowing money to start to flow. Those like so we actually need to bring the responsibility questions back to some of those those folks. There's no shortcut here, right? There's no shortcut at all. At the very core of this is building independent political power. It's building it in the communities in which are being targeted by um, those that would restrict their votes to black and brown communities, native populations, young people. That's you know it's incredibly essential to ensure that those organizations that work in those communities are are at the table and, and driving the strategy. I mean, you've said that in some ways you're more pushing a strategy than building an organization. In your interactions with the state-based groups that you're helping to fund, do they have to change much to implement the strategy that you're putting forward? Do some of them have to change? How do you negotiate that? Or are you identifying groups that basically fit what you want them to do already? What's the kind of interaction between the granting that you're doing and what you want to see happen? So our our strategy is completely informed and driven by what our state partners are telling us that they think is needed to do and necessary to do in their state. There's no light between their strategy and our strategy in terms of what we're funding and what we're pursuing. I so mean, you think they're always a, right? No. And the, you know, the back and forth between really smart leaders at the state level and our staff and myself, they always like illuminate on both sides of the of the conversation. We're talking to these to, to state leaders every week, right? We talk talk to you know two dozen state leaders every week, understanding like what they're up to, what their gaps are, what their obstacles are, how can we support them. So we are much smarter by listening to state leaders than we are by you know coming to a conversation with our own ideas before we talk to them. So my orientation on all this is less, hey, you got to work on democracy because it's on fire. It's you know tell us. What would it take in your state to envision a pro-democracy infrastructure and what are the components of it that you think are already like well-established that need to get scaled up? What are the elements that need to be connected to this because they're not knit together yet? And what are the efforts that don't exist that we need to help you figure out how to build? And so it's more the conversations that we have with our state leaders the earlier conversation at this point, they're trying to figure out how to win. So they just need money sitting back and doing any analysis right now for our state leaders. It's not really like, 
it's not the time of year for that. They're deeply engaged in trying to win elections and defeat people who are uh, are taking us in the wrong direction. Early in the year, the most important thing was for us to get them to think expansively beyond what they're currently doing to envision what would it look like to take on this aspect of the work, to take on a much more robust effort around democracy. And not every organization was willing to take on that kind of leadership role. Many organizations are completely willing to engage and support it. So in some states, we have one organization that we're supporting. They regrant to others. But that's one organization that the others have agreed that's where we want to base this campaign and base this effort. In other states, we have you know uh, eight to 10 grantees um, that are uh, carrying out work Um, mostly in a coordinated, concerted way, either through uh, the work that we're doing or that others are doing. So it's very different from state to state. But the the big picture here is that that we don't have a separate strategy that we're going out and peddling. We have a set of state strategies that we are trying to amplify and improve and make better and and fund. Some of the policy and political... uh, goals in a state vary a lot from group to group and are, uh, you know, part of very contentious fighting among different kinds of progressives and more moderate or conservative members of the pro-democracy coalition. It's very important to have a coordinated message that people can, can geal around and pushed together in a way that's effective. It's also kind of nice to have some, I guess, breadth to it and some variation that reaches different audiences in different ways. Are you involved in that? Do you have a theory about like what works and what doesn't work that you've either picked up from the bottom or conceived of during all of your time and with your, all of your advisors? How do you think about those kind of concrete details of politics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, concrete de- details of politics or policy, right? Because I think there's a difference there. Like A lot of people who get very focused on policy may disagree about the policy and about the politics and what works and what doesn't work to win to get the most done by governing. That's a good question. And I and it's certainly some that I think we're going to have to wrestle with more as the calendar turns to a non-election year. And there are like a set of efforts to try to move one bill or another in a state legislative environment. Like, you know, I can name any number of states where that might be the case. If you just take a step back, our interest is building the capacity to win, not winning a policy, right? So obviously, if you build the capacity wins on policy and elections should come. If they don't, then then you're not doing the capacity right or you're not doing it well enough. Or you didn't win by enough. Uh, yeah. Or it didn't be, build it big enough, right? Yeah. So um, so the question is is not like, like, so if you take a state like Minnesota, right, we have supported organizations to build a broad campaign that is about supercharging the democracy work in the state. There are bills in the legislature that they could get behind in 2023. They're going to have an internal process through a bunch of different assemblies around the state, working with organizations that are interested in trying to figure out what the policy agenda looks like. Out of that, we'll say they'll say, well, here are the, you know, here are the kinds of policy priorities we have collectively, right? So they've built that. Now, does that include every single organization or even a national organization that says, we think this policy is the one that we ought to move and we're going to hire a lobbyist to move it? Or we're going to fund one organization to map out one kind of campaign to move that. So it, it may or may not take all that into consideration. That's something for our state partners to navigate to the extent that they have challenges with that. We're here to support like using the relationships we have. And this is where the advisory committee is actually really focused and detailed. State organizations should be building the power for the policies that they want to pass, right? Not building power for some national group to come in and say, here's a great idea. Does that mean we'd want to prevent ideas from flowing around? Absolutely not. But we don't have a policy shop and we're not interested in um, pointing out like one thing or another that they shouldn't do unless there's some conflict and some tension, 
And then I think we've built some trust in, and some ability to navigate both with national partners and state partners, um, how best to uh, move forward. So like, it's not a problem we have had yet. It's not a problem that I'm uh, unaware of uh, the potential for it to come up next year. I saw in some of your materials that you were aiming to raise something like $55 million and have spent more than half of it. It's a large amount of money. You know, no one can argue with that. It's also a small amount of money with the stakes and tiny amount of money in some regards, right? Is it been hard to raise that? Is there the potential to treble it or multiply it by a number that would make a lot more difference? Is there diminishing returns after this? How do you think about the scale that you're operating on and people that are helping you do this, you know, where they could go from here or at others? The, the projection of how much we hope to raise this year, um, we're going to meet those projections, not just on the basis of how much money we've collected and given out or directed straight to an organization, but by what I was describing before of helping other funders see the world as we do in directing money to organizations and sharing with us who they're giving to so we can give to others or we can double down on their investments. So I'm pretty certain we'll make that um, that goal, again, as an aspirational goal in year one to do this in a way that was not simply impactful on an election, but impactful in terms of the orientation of groups to build the capacity over time. Those would be the real tests for um, whether we're able to continue doing fundraising is when we take a step back and say, how is it going? Right? So here's what the capacity was then. Here's what it looks like now. This is what we got for the investment. This is what we're going to need from this point on to build deeper communications capacity or organizing capacity or coordination between organizations. And what does that look like for next year? That's what we're going through right now. And we'll come up with a budget number working with our state partners to say, this is what we want to contribute towards that. We're not going to fund everything that state organizations do on democracy. We're just not. And there's there's no ways we should, right? I don't, I don't think funders should be responsible to carry a whole issue area, right? This is a huge area, right? So I know there's another group that's trying to raise a billion dollars, right, in for pro-democracy. And I hope they do. Uh, and in fact, yeah, so the, it, you know, the U.S. government should be spending money on it. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, we're at a place in our history that the need to have democracy be a growth industry in terms of fundraising is pretty acute, right? So I wish we did not have to spend this time doing it, but we do. And I'd love to work myself out of a job. That's probably going to be a while before that happens. And if we can use our relationships with state organizations, the ability of us to help them develop stronger and stronger plans find ways that we can, you know, build the power to leverage for change. That is what we want to take to the foundation and funder world, whether the money comes to us or whether it's just helps orient their giving. We also want those state partners to be telling other foundations and other funders that they're invested in this work and doing it. We're not going to be the sole funder of, of all that work, but we're certainly going to try to leverage a lot of money into it. Uh, I think it's, it's, you know, existential. Do you feel tension with your history of with now working with large funders to change politics? I mean, it's a little almost a little bit ironic that you've switched roles in this way. Yeah, it's ironic, but but not hypocritical. So, listen, I set up super PACs. I set up political operations to defeat people using large contributions. So I'm like I'm completely in the world as it is. And think that uh, it's really important uh, to use the tools that are available to us to make change. And I think the capacity that gets built by these state organizations of engaging communities of color, engaging young people, it's essential for the functioning of democracy, regardless of whether there's a democratic crisis underway. We always have to be building power given organizations are never, ever built right? They're always building, right? If you think your organization is built, it's dead, right? You have to always think about what can we do to improve? This is where like, I think the most important phrase in American 
ideology, American, you know, political thought is more perfect. Like I always think that we ought to be striving to do more. It probably puts me into a workaholic category, but it also means that like we should celebrate when we win, we should mourn when we lose, and we need to continue to fight. I think we have to keep pushing. And I don't think using the tools that we have available to us is not a sign of kind of uh, that we're not in this for the right reasons. When you're persuaded that this is the fight of the time and you've put yourself in one part of the middle of it, to me, that's got to be fairly fulfilling to think I'm doing what I can do. I am fighting the fight. I'm bringing the learnings of my career to this. I'm partnering with the people that I think are intelligent and are in the right place. How are you feeling about it from your own sense of uh, how to live a life? Well, I get to work with pretty amazing people every day. So it's just from a, on a personal level and on a professional level, it's incredibly fulfilling, set aside, you know, what we're working on. So like, uh, and not just the people I interact with who, who work uh, for the pro-democracy campaign, but the funders who engage in this, the state partners that are leading organizations, these are amazing people that I learn from and, and respect. And working on this issue or these set of issues around democracy um, is incredibly humbling because there's no way you can do everything and no way you can even do a fraction of all the things that need to be, you know, need to get done. And still, like, it will require so many people to focus on it in a way that is much more strategic than what's happened in the past. The stuff that feel, that I feel most fulfilled um, on when I think about the work that I'm doing uh, beyond the relationships of learning from folks, it's the idea that we are at the cutting edge of a strategy to shift how we think about these questions and how we invest in them. And we're not there alone. There's no way we can stay there alone, right? Others have to adopt it for us to succeed. But you asked me at the, the beginning of the outset that there's a, you know, whether I grew up in a political family and. I remember my dad telling me one thing that stuck with me, which is like, you should be incredibly happy when you discover that your avocation is your vocation. What you're actually passionate about is what you get to do every day. So yeah, it's uh, amazing to have that. And my brain is on, right? It's like the most difficult part of this job is turning my brain off. I read novels. I don't read a lot of like, you know, current history, you know, current events books, but yeah, it is a humbling job to have. And it's, it's incredibly rewarding. Sounds pretty good to me. One of the things that I think about when I'm talking to someone like you is you say strategy, but like a lot of what's happening is, is really very tactical. It's how do I, uh, shore up the infrastructure, fill gaps in infrastructure when like big strategic things are, what does president ex-president Trump say? And how does he cast some stone out there that reverberates and shifts the way people think? What does President Biden do? What does the Congress do? All of these big moves that are consequential at a level that I've never operated on or, or been part of. I've asked a couple of people this question in, in different forms, but like, do you think we have enough connection between the people doing the kind of work that you're doing and your funding and the decision-making and the big strategy that's happening among our leadership around the country? So just to answer your, your question directly, I think that is emerging and it's strengthening and it's important. I want to take one quite you know, one issue with how your description of the strategy being the national, what the president does or what national leaders do. I actually think some of the smartest strategists in the country are running state organizations or running local organizations or running campaigns. And Inevitably, so yes. Not, yeah. So, and so when I think about that, you know, yes. But it matters to them a huge amount what Biden says, right? Whether, or, or, whether it's reverberated, right? The fact that, that Biden 
you know, referred to MAGA Republicans was not an accident, right? So, so just, you know, and it, it wasn't, it was not a phrase that the White House came up with. So if there is a connective tissue out there between organizations that are really thinking about this, national organizations, as well as state organizations and what's helpful. And I'll say this, that if we were just funding a series of tactics, we wouldn't get anywhere. We need the vessel of the strategy that the tactics animate. And so, yes, the tactics are in service to moving a strategy, but they are driven by a lot of state organizations that are incredibly smart strategists. When I ran Every Voice, we made a shift internally to not think about an annual strategic plan. We made the shift to having every person on staff be a strategist and to treat every single question that we're dealing with is like, how does this layer up to the strategy we're trying to pursue? I've said this several different ways in the conversation. I haven't meant to like land on it so heavily on, on this particular question, but I, I do think it's really critical to have the local and state strategies driven by the leaders in those communities and the organizations that are there year in, year out. They know the players, they know that they have the power analysis and they need, they need expertise when they need it. And they, anyway, that's. I mean, I, I know from talking to a lot of those people that you've talked to that they have felt that way strongly for a long time and they've been advocating for being treated that way. I still hear quite frequently, we don't feel that it's there yet. Yep. I think we're contributing to, to the connective tissue ourselves at, at the Bernard Oxy campaign. And I don't think it's, um, and I also want to like recognize that the question you raised before about they're not always right and, you know, and they don't always know what they don't know. So I do think we have an expertise on staff that helps to fill in the gaps, but we do it with a orientation towards how do we support them in their own professional development and their own learning and their own experience. Well, I wonder if there's a question that I failed to ask you that I should have. You've been pretty thorough. You haven't asked me what I'm having for lunch yet. I've appreciated the conversation. That's been a good one. Well, it has been from my end, and I'm really glad that you're doing what you're doing, and I hope that it makes a difference. Anything else you want to say? Uh, no, I think I've probably said way too much. <laughs> that I doubt. <laughs> Uh, Thank you for taking the time. That was David Donnelly. David is at ofby4consulting.com. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found. The Great Battlefield is now part of the Democracy Group Podcast Network. Visit democracygroup.org to learn more about other podcasts that cover democracy and civic engagement. You can also help me by leaving comments and good ratings on Apple Podcasts or elsewhere, and by sending me suggestions for great guests to nperlman at gmail.com.